Hello, welcome to the Alligator Sports Podcast, the sports podcast for the independent alligator. I'm your host, Brian Hernandez, and these are the stories in sports. Florida football suffered its first loss of the season in its first game of the season against the Utah Utes in Salt Lake City. The Florida Gators were unable to take down number 14 in the nation as the Utah Utes defeated the Gators 24-11. It was a game with the second year of Billy Napier's head coaching career at Florida. Not a great start for the season, nor for the second year in his tenure. With me now is the sports editor, Jackson Reyes, as well as the assistant sports editor, Topher Adams. Guys, thank you for joining in again. Thank, thank you, Brandon. Adams. Now, this is a game I was expecting, of course, uh, for those who did not see our last or hear our last podcast uh, for the Alligator Sports Podcast. We did a little bit of predictions, and we said that this Utah team should have no issue against Florida. But, of course, the skills of Florida's players, they could potentially make an effect. There wasn't much of an effect in this game. Florida never led throughout, and in overall, this was a game where Florida was really catching up against Utah. Uh, but for Jackson, I mean, you made the trip over there. What did you see in person from this Gators team, and what were your takeaways of the game? Yeah, uh, you know, making the travel over, I was looking at that team, and uh, as you mentioned before, uh, it was one that Utah that we expected them to handle. But then, you know, before Cam Rising, he's not dressed out, he's not going to be playing the game. Uh, Utah will be relying on two backup quarterbacks uh, who kind of split playing time out there. Um, they were still able to handle Florida. They won 24-11, you know, two scores. You know, really had no trouble with the Gators, uh, even though the second half was a little bit closer. Uh, and ultimately, you know, what I took away from that Florida team is they just looked a little undisciplined out there. Uh, a lot of mental mistakes really, you know, down them from the start early. Because uh, I don't even think they necessarily played all that bad. Obviously, they struggled in areas, you know, failed to put pressure on the quarterback, uh, really failed to get the run game going, aside from those mental errors that I mentioned. But, you know, there were still some positives going forward. And talking to Billy Napier in the post game, talking to the players, uh, they both brought up the same thing. Just it, it comes down to the execution. It's a long season. Obviously, this was not the note that they wanted to start on, losing on the road at Utah. But, you know, they still have 11 games left in the regular season. A lot of progress left to be made. And, you know, plenty of time to still get better moving on from this point. And speaking of progress, we look at not only from the passing games, because I know you mentioned for Utah, they came into this game with Cam Rising, their starting quarterback, usually not playing in this game. However, they went through three quarterbacks. And funny enough, two of them, Bryson Barnes was and Nate Johnson, getting rushing touchdowns. Topher, when you looked at the defense going into this season, it was a defense that, you know, we talked about in the last podcast, a lot of skilled guys, five-star guys, four-star guys, you know, composite big-time players. But it, no sacks recorded in this game. They were having an issue just just controlling, really, anything that Utah was doing. But, of course, held them to 24 points. Would you say for the Florida Gators in this game, was this more of a win kind of with this young group or do you see a lot of issues that are going to foreshadow later on this season i think for florida and a new defensive coordinator austin armstrong it's a very mixed bag performance i think on one hand you have a lot of really promising moments and a lot of strong things to build upon i think the rushing defense generally was pretty good i think they were formidable Guys like Cam Jackson and Caleb Banks up in the interior of the defensive line. You know, they had some shaky moments at the beginning, but overall, fairly strong debuts uh, for, for Florida. I think some certain young players really popped. Shamar James, I think, led the team in tackles or 13 tackles. Yeah. Really impressive game for him, a sophomore. He was one of the big 
uh, signings for Billy Napier when he first got to Florida. T.J. Searcy, a fresh, true freshman outside linebacker, he made a couple of splash plays. He, he looked like a very promising player. But, you know, you take all these nice little moments and these nice things to build upon, and you have to juxtapose them with, these, like, no sacks. Yeah. I think there were some good pressures at times, and, you know, they, they disrupted play in, in spurts, but they didn't get home. You know, I think the, there was the big coverage bust on the first play of the game. Utah takes the top off of them with the deep post play action shot, and Florida secondary is, is caught sleeping, and it's a 70-yard touchdown on the first play. And, you know, there were a couple moments like that. There was almost a touchdown in the game. Utah runs a little trick play, double pass. Yeah. And it's a wide-open touchdown. The, the receiver just puts a little too much juice uh, on the pass, and it's incomplete. But So, again, I think there's a lot to like. And if you look at it in a vacuum, mm-hmm. 24 points allowed on the road against a top-15 team, you're probably going to live with that basically any week, yeah. any time. Yeah. Like, that's a good performance. I know Utah's not exactly Tennessee in terms of how they like to play offense, but right. – it's a pretty solid performance, all things considered, and there's a lot of room for improvement, and I think that's good for Florida because this is a program that likes it likes the image of tough defense, especially if you grew up in the Meyer years or the Muschamp years where this team was really built on tough physical defense. That's what the brand was in many ways. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a program that wants to kind of recapture that energy. And I think this is a, a strong sign pointing to that. We'll see how they develop from week one uh, into the SEC play. And you know maybe the pass rush can get better. Maybe some of the secondary issues can get cleaned up. But I think overall you're frustrated in spurts, but optimistic going forward. Yeah, and just like going off of that too, you know, I, I guess sort of the, the game one overreaction slash overarching theme really was uh, – you know, I feel Ben don't break defense yeah. for the most part. Uh, you you look at Bryson Barnes, who he he attempted the most passes, eighteen pass attempts. He was really their main uh, throwing quarterback. They used Nate Johnson more as a a rusher. Uh, you know, he had one hundred fifty nine passing yards. Really got seventy come off of that one big play. Afterwards, kind of sure. settled down. You know, you're really only giving up what like eighty nine, ninety yards. I think if the math is right uh, yeah. on eleven attempts. And you take that if you're Florida's defense. You look at the second half, they only give up one touchdown. And that touchdown comes from an interception from Graham Mertz. Mm-hmm. Uh, Utah automatically starts, I think, I don't know if they were in the red zone, but they're at least around Florida's like 30-yard line, within the 30-yard line range. Yeah. Um, and it's just tough for any team to try and, uh, you know, stop the other team from scoring in that instance, whether it's a touchdown or a field goal, unless you're forcing an interception or a turnover. Um, so if you look yeah. at that second half defensively, uh, other than that one position where they're put in a bad spot, the, the defense played pretty well. They held up. Uh, and even in the first half, you know, they give up the one touchdown off the big play, you know, very first drive. And the other um, touchdown was off the special teams penalty. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that's where Nate Johnson has that breaks off that 27-yard run. Um, you know, you'd like that not to happen. If you're Florida's defense, you won't want him. You know, he's really getting shifty <laughs> around defenders. But, you know, that's one of those plays where it's like it wasn't necessarily them just methodically driving down, you know. You have a mistake on special teams. You have two players wearing the same jersey number, which we'll talk about that later. Uh, Utah gets the ball back, and then it's just it's another free chunk play that hopefully, you know, once your young defense gets some more experience, plays like that are, you know, less frequent. Yeah, and I, I want to throw one last thing on the defense before we move on. Florida's biggest problem last year defensively was third down. Yeah. They have been terrible in those high-leverage money situations. 
Utah, if I'm looking at my notes, they went three for 13 mm-hmm. on third down on Thursday. That is every... If Florida's going to be better defensively, that's the stat. And if they can do that every week, Florida fans and Billy Napier will be extremely happy with Austin Armstrong and, and, and very pleased with this defense. And you mentioned Ben no break. That's kind of what defense is in 2023. The days of shutting somebody out and holding them to 50 yards, that's just not how football works. That's not what the sport is anymore. But it's winning third down. It's winning in the red zone, and it's making big plays. I think Florida already looks better on third down. Mm. We'll see in the red zone, TBD. And then they need to make more big plays defensively. And with some young playmakers, you would hope that comes with time. Yeah, and obviously, like you mentioned, there were flaws. Uh, you know, they failed to get to the quarterback for any sacks. Um, you'd like to improve that area. You'd like to be able to try and get guys like Prince of Manlin in positions where they can get after the quarterback because he is just such a skilled player defensively. Uh, but ultimately, uh, I feel like once you look at the bigger picture, the defense put the team in a position to win the game. Uh, you know, you go into halftime down 17-3, not the best position, but it's not like Florida did not have chances to try and score points, just missed opportunities going to that second half again you're down 24-3 but that was with 11 minutes left in the third quarter you know especially in a sport like college football 11 minutes left in the third quarter and then you still have all the fourth that's plenty of time to mount a comeback teams do it all the time so it's not like the defense uh wasn't doing a good job of putting the team in a position to win obviously you know you can always do better you can always give up you know not give up three touchdowns but ultimately i think the defense uh, showed some positive signs, and hopefully going forward as they move into SEC play, uh, they'll only get better at that because, again, it's a lot of young faces in the, the first game of the season. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as you mentioned before, with young faces, I mean, James himself, sophomore, yeah. 13 tackles, led the entire defense for that day. Uh, but let's – because we did talk a little bit about it, but I think we should probably go into it for those who do not – or unfamiliar with the special teams <laughs> gate of jersey swaps. For some, I don't know how exactly, because there is usually coaching staff who are part of this on any program that are just on the jerseys and on, you know, even Gatorade. But for some reason, uh, the Florida Gators had two guys wearing the number three, that being, of course, Jason Marshall Jr., uh, the corner for the Gators, as well as Eugene Wilson the third, the wide receiver freshman. Uh, they were both on special teams, <laughs> and this was a moment in the game, really early in the game, where I believe, uh, and I do apologize if I have to score wrong, Seven to three, something like that. Something like that, where the Gators were punting the ball down into great territory off the leg of Jeremy Crawshaw, and unfortunate for the Gators, they were unable to take advantage of that due to these penalties. And there was a lot of penalties like that, yeah. where it caused the Gators to really yeah, I play mean, at their own fault. Yeah, I mean that situation. It looked for a second like Florida was kind of on the ropes defensively. Mm-hmm. Utah was driving the ball, but they 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 make a big stand. To stop Utah. Utah has to punt, right? Yeah. And it looks like Florida's going to get the ball back. Florida has the momentum. It's like, all right, we got we have a ball game here. And then you have two players with the same jersey number on the field at the same time. Yeah. Like a day one of spring training camp level mistake. And Florida, Utah gets a first down, and then they end up scoring a touchdown. Like yeah, that, I, that just can't happen. It's one, it's one of those plays where it's just such an anomaly. You know, it happened. Everyone in the press box is, was a little confused initially. Because it's one of those things where if you see a penalty flag thrown in a putt like that, uh, you expect it to be holding. You expect it to be maybe offside or a false start if it's on the offense. Things where obviously those are mental errors that you'd like not to happen uh, if you're a coach. But, you know, ultimately we see that sometimes in punting, in special teams, things like that. 
But to have uh, two players with the same jersey number is just such a mental breakdown that is such an anomaly. Um, you know, it's got to be frustrating for Billy Napier out there. Uh, and the, the interesting part, too, is that, you know, the, the guy out there, you have Jason Marshall out there who wears number three. And then you also had Eugene Wilson out there who just switched from number 21 to number three. Uh, a lot of people pointed to that as, uh, you know, Napier talked about it with, like, a former sheet uh, with that play that they're running, having both guys when they had the old number for Eugene. But even then, Desmond Watson's on the play, on that punt return. He wears 21, which was <laughs> Eugene's old number. Uh, so ultimately, it, it's just a, a, a breakdown mentally that, you know, was a backbreaker. You know, Florida, it was 7-3 for a lot of that, that first half. That's a play where they get that stop at midfield and they have a lot of momentum. And then, boom, Utah gets the first down, makes a touchdown, it's 14-3. Yeah. So it, it's those kind of plays that are, are kind of inexcusable. And, and I'm, I'm not making groundbreaking first-of-its-kind analysis here, but that is the type of coaching mistake that 100% cannot happen yes there are things like maybe you have a bad play call maybe the wrong personnel like you should have had this wide receiver instead of this wide receiver like those are little coaching decisions that like they're 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 part of nature the two guys with the same number that's happened like single digit times <laughs> in recent calls <laughs> completely inexcusable type of thing and billy Napier is not short staffed florida yeah. has one of the largest football staffs in the entire country, mm-hmm. and to make a mistake that bad is it, it's tough to put so much blame on one fluke play, but yeah. like that is such a terrible sign for the state of the program management. Exactly. Yeah, you just, just and, can't stuff like that can't happen. And you, you look at that game too, or you look at that play too, and obviously that's one of the big moments of the game where you, that can really change momentum, but. It was honestly just the theme for the game itself, just those errors over and over and over again that killed drives for Florida. Um, and it's just you know, pretty interesting because Billy Napier is someone who really prides himself on discipline, making sure everyone's in the right place, uh, you know, just doing their job. And to see you know, so many penalties uh, was really obviously probably frustrating for him. You, know, you look at the, the red zone penalties of that game. Uh, in the second quarter, they had a third and seven delay of game on the 15. No. That killed a drive. Uh, they had a fourth and one on the nine-yard line. Uh, they were about to go for it on fourth down. Then they have a, a, I believe, a false start. Turns to a fourth and six. They try the field goal. I believe they missed the field goal, right? Or, yeah. Yeah. So, like, that happens. And then you have a third and one on the 13, illegal formation. I think they had two illegal formations. They had multiple false yeah. starts. So, I, I think that was another thing, you know, obviously, we'll get to that later, but just you know, frustrations in the offensive line as a whole, not just in their performance, but also just the mental mistakes that really killed the team. I mean, the way I talk about, like, obviously two players in the same jersey number is, like, a different breed of, of inexcusable mistake, but mm-hmm. like, illegal formation, like, false start could be a coaching thing, could be an inexperienced offensive line thing, could yeah. be a crowd thing. I mean, you were there. It was a great crowd yeah, in Salt Lake City. Most attended game ever, I believe. Yeah, so, so like, like their crowd was registering on the Richter scale. It was Im- impressive in that in that capacity. So, like, so false stars are what they are, but illegal formations, that's just not getting lined up right. That's yeah. just, like, that's bad coaching. It is. <laughs> if it your is. players can't get lined up properly, like, that's bad coaching, and... This is a terrible apples and oranges kind of comparison, but I think it just highlights what coaching does to you. Like Colorado 
beat TCU yesterday, right? Mm-hmm. We're recording this on Sunday, right? Colorado yeah. beat TCU. Colorado has 80 new players on their roster and a whole brand new coaching staff. Most of these guys have not played or coached together before. And I think they have either zero or one procedural penalties in the entire game. Yeah. This Florida team, there are new starters and freshmen or whatever. They have, what, eight procedural penalties? Yeah. Like, that. that's... Am I wrong, or is that just a straight-up coaching error? It's that, absolutely. I mean, and not even that, because we talked about the atmosphere. We're talking about an attendance, 53,644 in Salt Lake. Now, for those who have not been to rice Echo Stadium, I'm pretty sure Jackson, of course, will attest to this. It's one of those atmospheres where in the Pac-12, or formerly known for the Pac-12, where it was a bumping student section that was all yelling, all screaming, I mean, people talk about the Gators when they hosted this Utah team last season where everyone's, you know, covering their ears and everything like that. You can argue it's the same atmosphere, but going the other way for the Gators. And yeah. for an unexperienced team, I mean, we took just a little bit about the situations. After Adam Mahalik missed that 31-yard field goal attempt in the second quarter, Billy Napier was all for the fourth down go, right? No matter if it was down a touchdown, down 10 points, down 14 points, and some can argue this game was getting a little bit close in the beginning of the game, then went away when the Gators would have to go on fourth down just to, you know, save themselves to get a touchdown. In reality, maybe a field goal here would have been very, you know, positive for them. Maybe something for the drive to show that Graham Mertz is getting points on the board for this Gators offense. But for this young roster to be in that situation, for the Florida Gators, it was not the best situation for them after that first quarter. Yeah, I didn't... Uh, obviously, you know, tough for me to disagree. I didn't necessarily hate uh, a lot of Napier's decisions where he's going for fourth, going for it on fourth down, especially in these fourth and short situations, uh, or when they went down multiple scores. Uh, I, I like when a team is more aggressive. That's and true. honestly, when you reach a point like when it was twenty four three, you know, field goals are, are are not doing much for you. You entered four down territory pretty early. Um, my biggest thing was I didn't necessarily understand Billy Napier's play calling on yeah. those downs. It's not necessarily the decision. I thought it was final decision, just the call to themselves, what it's, he wanted to run. Uh, yeah. it, it's it's all execution and play calling. There was one pivotal fourth down where the team looks completely out of sorts, the snap is late, and they're trying to do this like fake jet motion, tight end shovel pass, and it totally fails. Yeah. Everything's out of time, out of rhythm. And uh, maybe we'll get into this later, maybe this is the time for this, but I think it just underscores one of my biggest frustrations with Billy Napier as a offensive coach, not as a head coach, is that he kind of hangs his players out to dry a little bit with how needlessly complicated <laughs> the offense is from the formation. There's so much motion and shifting, but it doesn't do anything. Yeah, it, it It's kind of just motion. It feels like motion for motion's sake, and I'm – like I'm sure there are more astute football minds that might be able to nitpick that statement from me, but I don't know, man. I've watched a lot of analysis from those smarter football minds that kind of say the same thing I've been saying. Yeah, I mean, even like, you know, watching that game, you know, watching every single play, uh, you see Graham Mertz, and he's, you know, trying to almost not necessarily audible, but he's trying to make so many adjustments before the snap every single play, and I don't know if that's because. 
uh, you know, things are going on where he's trying to put his offensive line in the best possible situation, yeah. or if because of the sets they are running, just not necessarily working. And that could be, like, because Kingsley Aquakin, multi-year starting that's center, true. maybe some of that's protection stuff that instead of Graham Mertz is going, but... Yeah, could, yeah and, and obviously you want your quarterback to know what he's doing, and I, I believe Mertz did in those situations, but it's also, you know, what is he saying that he needs to have so many, so much preset motion every single play almost? Uh, that Especially just, in week one in the exactly, tough atmosphere. Exactly. Like, yeah. I'm not saying simplify it in the sense that, like, don't use your creative plays. You know, don't go for it on big situations. I'm just being, like, like simplify it so that you don't yeah. have weird shifts and, with five seconds left on the and clock. And not necessarily yeah. that, like, you know, all of it didn't work. I mean, they ran that one jet sweep with Trey Wilson. Yeah. It went for nine yards. Um, you know, he's a talented player, plays like that. Like, obviously, you're going to find success in those moments. But just looking overall as a whole, especially on those fourth down calls, I feel like you know he play, called a lot of plays where it's Grammert's throwing screen passes to Pearsall, throwing screen passes to like Trey Wilson, trying to see if they can get some work done. But you know you, you just have to you know throw beyond the sticks, yep. trying to go bigger. I, that was something I saw, especially looking at the discourse from Florida fans and and pundits alike. I mean, it did feel like Florida almost never through beyond the first down marker. I mean, just, just look, I have it pulled up right now. Like, looking at his, uh, Grammar's passing chart, 11 of his pass attempts were, you know, either at or behind the line of scrimmage. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just it's looking like at how It's like 25% of pass. his attempts. And yeah. then, he, you know, he has 11 that are between the line of scrimmage and the line to gain. Um, and I don't know if that's because, you know, he, he obviously was under duress for a lot of that night just because of the Utah defense being able to get after him. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's just because of a little bit, Grammar's went out of the ball too long, but I feel like more of it just has to do with the offensive line was uh, not great in that Utah game. And, you know, I saw some Florida fans saying that, you know, they wish he was able to push it up more. And I, I think that just because he did not necessarily have the time because the offensive line sure. didn't give him that time. Yeah. Because when he was throwing up the field, I, I thought he looked pretty good. Yeah. He found Ricky Pearsall on a couple nice throws down the field. It was the touchdown to Douglas. The touchdown to yeah. Douglas was really – also, that was a great play by Douglas. <laughs> yeah. In the press box, you know, he, he comes down with that football. No one thought he actually caught it. It looks like <laughs> a pick from our angle. And then he just comes down, he's holding the football, just standing there in celebration. <laughs> like, oh, they scored. And, uh, you know, it's some great plays from Marcus Burke as well. So I think, you know, Mertz completed 70% of his passes, 333 yards, touchdown, interception. You know, he did. Obviously, he wasn't perfect. There were areas he could improve upon. I think that's the theme for a lot of their play. Uh, but he showed a lot of positive signs out there. And, you know, when he had that time and when he was able to, to maneuver in the pocket, he was finding guys downfield that was really moving the ball. And I think that's the thing, too, going back to those penalties is, there were several times where Florida did move the ball down the field into the yeah. red zone, and they would just have a penalty or something happen that just, you know, killed the drive. Yep. Yeah. And it kills emotion, especially. Exactly. But look, I mean, just the craziest thing I think about this, because, of course, as you mentioned before, Graham Mertz throwing for the day was pretty impressive. 31 completion off of 44 attempts and 333 yards with a touchdown and interception, of course. Uh, however, sacked five times. Yeah. And you look at the rushing, the box score, and... This is a real stat for those <laughs> who are questioning it. A loss of 47 yards. Yeah. I mean, and even if you look at just rushing in general, was the total rushing yards like 12? As of right now, it looks of it, 18 yeah. of eight attempts. That's the most <laughs> attempted rushes out of the entire running back room. Trevor Etienne was seven to get the closest. Eugene Wilson, one attempt. And funny enough, that's the second most yards 
off that one and ten. He got nine <laughs> yards off the one. It was uh, like that jet sweep they ran to get the the first first yeah. down eventually. Yeah, that was uh, you know the 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 running game was not great. I think that's more so the offensive line than the yeah, running backs. I yeah, think 100%. based off last season, we know these running backs are talented. Mm-hmm. I, I will say the interesting thing, though, is uh, I was curious why Montreal Johnson only had three carries. I don't yeah. know if that was because you know he was dealing with some sort of injury or if that was because Billy Napier wanted to rely more on the passing game. And in those moments, ETN just had the hot hand. Yeah. Um, you know, Didn't get the chance to ask him in the press conference You know his status. Um, so I haven't seen anything yeah. about that as of you know Sunday day of recording. Hundred percent. I, I I know when I talked about this game and in, in the preview of this game both on this podcast, on our student media poll SEC podcast, I mentioned how Florida I thought had the physicality to match up with Utah in the trenches and get mm-hmm. some physical run game going, and I, I really pointed to Montreal Johnson as the kind of guy who can square his shoulders between the tackles and you know, fight for a tough gritty five-yard gain right yeah but florida's offensive line gave nothing <laughs> for johnson or etn it was a, a nightmare game for the offensive line really i don't want to be too hyperbolic but one of the worst offensive line performances i've seen from florida in, in a while i mean even in some of the down years the last two years uh, both Dan Mullins last year and Billy Napier's first year, the offensive line has been a point of strength. There's been a lot of really good offensive line play. I mean, Osiris Torrance was a unanimous All-American last year. Yeah. His first second-round draft pick. And, and they've, they've had good offensive line play and good offensive line players, but it was it was a mess. They got no push in the run game. There was never a window. There was never an easy run. Not even a four-yard. I don't remember a single time where they could just hand it to Etienne or Johnson and they can just walk ahead for a nice four-yard gain on first down to get ahead of the sticks. It felt like that was never happening. And you mentioned the five sacks. Yeah. Almost, you mentioned Graham Mertz maybe held the ball a little bit too long. A lot of those, it's just like, what's Mertz supposed to do? Yeah. He's he's completely sold out. And, you know, he did what a good, you want a good quarterback to do. He didn't blame the line. He didn't point fingers. But, mm-hmm. I mean, he he, he could have. And yeah. it would be hard to judge him because it was an extremely disappointing performance from, I think, and I think they – they're saying the same things in their meetings this week because there are talented guys on this line. Austin Barber was a freshman All-American. You know, Damian George was a top recruit at Alabama. And, you know, Micah Mazuka, I think you said he might have had a little bit of an injury, but he was a top-rated guy. Um, Aguaca will be back at some point. He's a good player. But it's it's a tough scene. And if I, I, I have faith, maybe they can figure it out over the course of the season. They have good offensive line coaches. They have good talent in that room. But mm-hmm. it, it's... That's the biggest question mark for me for and, this game. And even with, you know, you know, obviously once Kingsley comes back, that'll be huge to help the offensive line because they, they really could use some help right now. Uh, that's the biggest thing, though. You know, especially in the SEC, games are, are won and lost at the trenches. Yeah. And even though Florida's defensive line didn't get a lot of pressure in the quarterback in terms of pass rush, you know, I thought they did really good uh, stopping the run. Obviously let up a couple big run plays, but for the most part, uh, several guys got tackles for losses, you know, really held up. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, they were one of the worst teams last season, you know, getting third down stops. This season, there were some third, or in this first game, there's third down and shorts that yeah. usually I feel like teams of Florida pass might give up pretty easily just because of, you know, how poor they were. And this season, their their defensive line stood tall, and they were able to stuff these running backs trying to get up for these first downs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm not so worried about the defensive line. I, I think a lot of it just rests on the offensive line, uh, and that is really going to dictate – how well Florida's going to be this season because 
I know there's talent in the running back room. I don't think there's any question about that. Yeah. Uh, I They already have guys like Pearsall, who's a talented wide receiver. I was impressed by the guys who didn't play that much or are new on the team, like Eugene Wilson, for example, was – you know, he showed a lot of flashes. He looks like he could be a really breakout player this year. Uh, Marcus Burke showed out. Uh, Caleb Douglas showed out. Yeah. So I think the wide receiver core may not be the best in the SEC, obviously, but you know, I think they, they have the potential to be one of the, the, the better ones, at least top half SEC, uh, if they play the potential. I thought Graham Mertz looked pretty good. I think he is going to be able to hold his own. I think a lot of it is rests on, is the offensive line going to be able to get the run game going as you get into SEC competition? And are they going to give Graham Mertz time yeah, yeah. once they get in the SEC competition? Yeah, I mean, especially when you talk about the receiving room. I think Jonathan Odom is one of the yeah, players I thought that tight end. did shine for the Florida Gators at tight end. He ended up having four receiving, my apologies, four receptions and 46 receiving yeah. yards. But I think that is kind of the elephant in the room that you mentioned before. Ricky Pearsall and the Mertz connection. 92 yeah. yards, eight receptions for Ricky Pearsall. And the longest being 40 yards... That was a big, but, that was a good that was a good play down the sideline. Yeah, that was a good play down the sideline. But what I would think about now going into the future, I mean, it's obviously out of the playbook. There's going to be a lot of teams that are going to look at Rick Pearsall like he's fresh meat, corners, safety. Everyone's going to try to get a little bit of a jib jab, whatever you want to call it, on this kid going out for vertical routes, go routes, slant yeah, routes, I whatever mean, you want to call it. The way Florida they they use him in a lot of different ways to free him up. I think that was kind of a you mentioned it like. The vertical passing game. I think there were moments last year where that's where really where he popped. I think back to the Florida State game, he yeah. torched Florida State's back end yeah. in the first half of that game. And I think now right now Florida's using him in a lot of different ways: swing screens, tunnel screens, mm-hmm. uh, quick stops. I mean, what Ricky Pearsall is best at, he's at his best when he's going over the middle. I, I believe. I think the best Ricky Pearsall is a guy running a deep over and catching a ball in a soft spot in the zone. Yeah. Um, and I think I think Florida struggled to get him involved at the beginning of the game, but they found a rhythm to get their guy touches. And I think you mentioned all those young guys popping. I think that takes a burden off of Pearsall as well because I think there were times last year where it felt like Ricky Pearsall was the only functional wide receiver on the yeah. roster. And no shade to Justin Shorter, who I, I like and thought was a good player, but Ricky Pearsall was the only real playmaker in the room, and I think there are more playmakers in the wide receiver room right now, and that should free him up um, to make more plays and to, to be a dynamic contributor throughout the offense. And to be honest, though, for the offense, I'm not – like Jackson said, I wouldn't be worried about the receiving room. I wouldn't be worried about the tight end room. Honestly, I thought those guys looked better than I thought they would. I wouldn't be worried about the running back room, and I wouldn't be worried about Graham Mertz. If Florida's offense is going to be good, it's because the offensive line looked way better than it did in week one. And if Florida's one of the worst teams in the SEC, it's because the offensive line didn't improve and they can't block anything. And I think across football, the best teams of football have the best offensive line, or the best offenses of football have the best offensive lines, and the worst offensive teams of football have the worst offensive lines. It's like football can be a complicated game. You can get really nitty and gritty, but. Honestly, that's kind of the game. That's yeah. that's kind of it. And like Alabama and Georgia have won so many national championships in the last decade because they have the biggest and best offensive lines in the country almost every year. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned the thing about teams going to key in on Pearsall. And I feel like that was already kind of the case last season. Mm. I, uh, it's only one game, but I feel like Florida's potential to be a much better receiving core than they did last season because, you know, you have an improved Pearsall second season in Florida. 
Uh, and then obviously I, I think these young guys are really going to show out. And then you look at last – or sorry, you look at the game. Pearsall really didn't do much in the first half. I think he might have had one reception for a few yards, but, you know, the Utah secondary was doing a good job of covering him up and just slowing him down. Um, and, but then you look in the second half, and that's really, you know, he is such a talented receiver. You know, talent was always going to show out, I feel. Uh, and he was able to do that. You know, you mentioned the, the 92 receiving yards and eight receptions. You know, he did have, you know, the, the one tough play where, you know, Mertz maybe throws it a little too high, and then Pearsall trying to make a play, kind of bats it up in the air, which leads to the interception. I don't think it's necessarily all on Pearsall or all on Mertz. I think it's mm-hmm. maybe a little in the middle. Right. Um, and that was just them trying to get him going because the Utah secondary was doing such a good job of uh, frustrating that, uh, you know, duo all night. But I think ultimately, even when they move into SEC competition, I mean, Utah is a really talented football team, so it's not like there's going to be that big of a jump, I feel, from Utah to SEC competition, other than Georgia, obviously. Um, so I, I think that won't be too much of an issue. As Topher mentioned, it really just comes down to the offensive line. Even even that tight end group that's very young, very inexperienced, I, I think they'll be just fine. Um, it just comes down to can, can the O-line block. And, you know... Outside of just the personnel, I think it also comes down to Billy Napier's play calling. Yeah. I hey. I did not love the play calling, personally. Uh, that's my, my biased opinion. Um, you know, it's one thing where, you know, the O-line obviously struggled. They struggled to get the run game going. But there were obviously, or not, there were certain positions where I felt Billy Napier's play calling just did not put Florida in a position where they were able no. to get first downs, uh, just move the chains and you know progress up the field to get scoring opportunities. Yeah, and then of course when you think about arguments for the result of this game for Florida fans, they're going to be thinking, is it the play calling? Is it just the O line? Is it because this receiving court did have enough time due to Utah's defense for Grammers to be you know using all the tools to his arsenal that he has on this roster? Uh, but you know the last two things we're going to talk about for this podcast, Jackson, what was the message that Billy Napier gave after this game? Yeah, the message he gave was basically just uh, talking about better execution. Um, there were a lot of things that the team could have done better, just you know, avoiding those mental mistakes that really kill drives. Because we talk about the struggles of the offensive line, we talk about the struggles of the play calling, all of that. Uh, and they still almost had a chance to win. It was 24-11, they had a missed field goal, they had a lot of opportunities where they could have had fourth and short, third and short, and you know, a false start, legal formation kind of kills that. Um, so I think just looking at that, just trying to get better in those aspects, I think, you know, he stayed optimistic about everything. You know, obviously they didn't, that wasn't the result they wanted. They're not in the place where they want to be, but there is that room for improvement, just watching the tape and just learning where they can go better. Um, and you know, he, he put a lot of it on himself. He was like, you know, he, he didn't do a good job, a good enough job coaching. Uh, and the Gators have to do better. You know, I, he kind of closed the press conference out talking about that. That's what he said. Um, and I, I do think, you know, they, they will improve from here. They'll play McNeese State next week, uh, a game that they should be favored to win by, by quite a bit. Um, and I think they can kind of use that as a tune-up game. And obviously the big matchup being Tennessee in two weeks yep. uh, is going to be the I, real test. Yeah, and I, I want to say this, like, for, for Florida fans looking forward, I think it's easy to feel okay, even though this was such a frustrating game in the moment, because most of what went wrong was extremely correctable in the short term. Like, 
For, you want to you juxtapose this with something. Think about the most recent losses to Georgia, right? Mm. Those Georgia games, there is not a single thing Billy Napier or anyone on Florida staff could have done better. They are going to lose those games by four touchdowns just because Georgia is a lot better yeah. <laughs> than Florida is across their roster. I think what this game was is that Florida, like they showed last year, is a similarly talented team to the Utahs of the world. They are, talent-wise, the guys they have on the field can be in that top 20, top 15 tier of teams already right now. What is frustrating is seeing so many coaching and execution deficiencies that take a top 20 roster <laughs> and sink it to you know these mind-numbing losses and these these aggravating mistakes so if florida can clean up these execution errors and can improve the offensive line to a respectable level they can absolutely hang with you know kentucky and south carolina and honestly even tennessee who i think is pretty overrated mm. um you know, they, they could still go out there and win, who knows, eight games. And I think if Florida goes eight and four this year, every Florida fan would be very happy with, with that result. So <laughs> there's a lot uh, that can still be achieved for this team. And I think it's not like they're a completely overmatched roster. It's just, it's really quite simply just execution and efficiency and maximizing what is in the cupboard for, for Billy Napier and company. Well, Billy Napier and company, after getting a field goal to start off the game, they went on to allow 17 unanswered points against the Utah Utes. But before we end off this podcast, Jackson, as you know, there's been a lot of trips that people here at the Alligator make, whether that be to Omaha, whether that be to the SEC tournament in men's basketball, which you've been on. You went to Utah. You went to Salt Lake, man. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that experience and, of course, you know, reporting on away soil. For um, at least away from our offices. Yeah, I had to make. I, I called it the impossible journey all week. Um, <laughs> you know, booked booked the flight to Salt Lake City uh, once I got credentialed um, on a limb because I just, uh, you know, Florida. They haven't played out west for a true road game since what, what was it? Nineteen eighty-three against USC. Against USC, so you know, a, a pretty historical matchup when you look at it like that. And uh, you know, I booked my flight for that Wednesday, the day before the game. And then as that hurricane was coming in, started to strengthen. I was kind of freaking out a little bit. So, you know, panic <laughs> last second. I was able to move my flight day before. Uh, got in Tuesday night to Salt Lake City. So, and then thankfully, obviously, you know, the hurricane did not hit Gainesville all that bad. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, you know, thankful for that. But, yeah, Salt Lake City, um, it was beautiful. Uh, the city is basically, like, at the bottom, like, the valley, surrounded by mountains. I loved walking around, looking at all of that. I got to see the the University of Utah campus. Uh, I will say kudos to them, credit to them. Very beautiful campus. Uh, loved walking around, checking it out. And, uh, yeah, Rice-Eccles, you know, I saw a lot of Florida fans on, on social media and stuff like that really uh, kind of knock Rice-Eccles just because it's, it is smaller than, than Ben Hill Griffin. Yeah. Uh, I saw somewhere where, you know, if you put it in the SEC, its capacity is only bigger than Vanderbilt. Uh, and even then, I, I still feel like that's just not a good, you know, way to look at it. Just because, um, you know, that atmosphere, it was, it was a great atmosphere. They really brought it. It was, uh, like I said earlier, the most attended game, I think, in school history. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little over 50,000 fans at the game. Um, and they really brought it. The student section was rocking. They were jumping, like, every play. Uh, getting to see the moment of loudness, you know, where they, 
all turn their phone flashlights on and you know on one two three all scream family uh, i thought that was a very touching moment and uh one that i, I was very thankful to get to see in person uh, and then yeah just getting to be able to on the field like during that game oh it was just so cool just you know seeing those fans you know it's a different culture than sec uh that's for sure i i don't know if uh the tailgating scene is quite the same or <laughs> things like that. But, you know, they still brought an energy that I was like, okay, this is, you know, they're passionate about football. I feel like that's yeah. a knock on the Pac-12 as a whole is, you know, maybe they're not necessarily a, a football conference, but, you know, I can at least speak to Utah that, you know, those are fans and students who, you know, care about that program, care about that team, and, you know, they, they really brought it Thursday night. So mm-hmm. uh, I will say it was a trip that I almost didn't make it, almost didn't happen to the storm, <laughs> but – uh, I'm really grateful I did, and uh, it, it was a uh, it was awesome. It was once in a lifetime opportunity. Man, that's incredible to hear, man. Because whenever I think of Salt Lake City, especially Utah, like what is there to do in Utah? You know what I mean? And and again, this isn't a a bash at that state or anything, but it is pretty incredible to see all those moments, especially when you know, you're posting on social media. And speaking yeah. of social media, you did make a TikTok, which is also available yeah. on Reels on your Instagram, Alligator Sports. Yes. But for the Florida Gators, they will look to regroup in their home opener against McNeese State, September 9th, this upcoming Saturday at 7.30 p.m. And it will be the start of a three-game homestand for the Gators, where, of course, McNeese State will be the opener, but then it falls by that of Tennessee and Charlotte. And, of course, Charlotte being a huge one for that is the Tom Petty Day at the Swamp. So, for the Gators themselves, they got a lot of things going for them. However, let's see what happens on the field for the Gators. On our next podcast, this has been the Alligator Sports Podcast. Thank you for listening.